Welcome to Jeff's Letters. This is an audio narration of Jeff Bezos' annual letter to shareholders. My name is Preet Anand, and I am your narrator. There's so much wisdom in these letters that they need to be as accessible as possible, and that's why I'm putting them on audio. This is a non-commercial effort, and my hope is that the 2020 letter Jeff narrates himself. Now, on to the letter. To our share owners, something strange and remarkable has happened over the last 20 years. Third-party sales have grown from 3% of the total of Amazon's retail sales to 58%. To put it bluntly, third-party sellers are kicking our first-party butt badly. And it's a high bar, too, because our first-party business has grown dramatically over that period, from $1.6 billion in 1999 to $117 billion this past year. The compound annual growth rate for our first-party business in that time period is 25%. But in that same time, third-party sales have grown from $0.1 billion to $160 billion, a compound annual growth rate of 52%. Quick narrator's note, put those two numbers together, and you're talking about $277 billion. Back to Jeff. To provide an external benchmark, eBay's gross merchandise sales in that period have grown at a compound rate of 20%, from $2.8 billion to $95 billion. Why did independent sellers do so much better selling on Amazon than they did on eBay? And why were independent sellers able to grow so much faster than Amazon's own highly organized first-party sales organization? There isn't one answer, but we do know one important part of the answer. We helped independent sellers compete against our first-party business by investing in and offering them the very best tools we could imagine and build. There are many such tools, including tools that help sellers manage inventory, process payments, track shipments, create reports, and sell across borders, and we're inventing more every year. But of great importance are fulfillment by Amazon and the Prime Membership Program. In combination, these two programs meaningfully improve the customer experience of buying from independent sellers. With the success of these two programs now so well established, it's difficult for most people to fully appreciate them today, how radical they were when we launched them. We invested in both of these programs at significant financial risk and after much internal debate. We had to continue investing significantly over time as we experimented with different ideas and iterations. We could not foresee with certainty what those programs would eventually look like, let alone whether they would succeed. But they were pushed forward with intuition and heart and nourished with optimism. Intuition, curiosity, and the power of wandering. From very early on in Amazon's life, we knew we wanted to create a culture of builders, people who are curious, explorers. They like to invent. Even when they're experts, they are fresh with the beginner's mind. They see the way we do things as just the way we do things now. A builder's mentality helps us approach big, hard-to-solve opportunities with a humble conviction that success can come through iteration, invent, launch, Reinvent, relaunch, start over, rinse, repeat again and again. They know the path to success is anything but straight. Sometimes, often actually, 
in business, you do know where you're going. And when you do, you can be efficient. Put in a place a plan and execute. In contrast, wandering in business is not efficient, but it's also not random. It's guided by hunch, gut, intuition, curiosity, and powered by a deep conviction that the prize for customers is big enough that it's worth being a little messy and tangential to find our way there. Wandering is an essential counterbalance to efficiency. You need to employ both. The outsized discoveries, the non-linear ones, are highly likely to require wandering. AWS's millions of customers range from startups to large enterprises, government entities to nonprofits, each looking to build better solutions for their end users. We spend a lot of time thinking about what those organizations want and what the people inside of them, from developers to chief information security officers, want. Much of what we build at AWS is based on listening to customers. It's critical to ask customers what they want, listen carefully to their answers, and figure out a plan to provide it thoughtfully and quickly. Speed matters in business. No business could thrive without that kind of customer obsession. But it's also not enough. The biggest needle movers will be things that customers don't know to ask for. We must invent on their behalf. We have to tap into our own inner imagination about what's possible. AWS itself, as a whole, is an example. No one asked for AWS. No one. Turns out the world was, in fact, ready and hungry for an offering like AWS, but didn't know it. We had a hunch, followed our curiosity, took the necessary financial risks, and began building, reworking, experimenting, and iterating countless times as we proceeded. Within AWS, that same pattern has recurred many times. For example, we invented DynamoDB, a highly scalable, low-latency, key-value database now used by thousands of AWS customers. And on the listening carefully to customer side, we heard loudly that companies felt constrained by their commercial database options and had been unhappy with their database providers for decades. These offerings are expensive, proprietary, have high lock-in and punitive licensing terms. We spent several years building our own database engine, Amazon Aurora, a fully managed MySQL and PostgreSQL compatible service with the same or better durability and availability as the commercial engines, but at one-tenth of the cost. We were not surprised when this worked. But we're also optimistic about specialized databases for specialized workloads. Over the past 20 to 30 years, companies ran most of their workloads using relational databases. The broad familiarity with relational databases among developers made this technology the go-to, even when it wasn't ideal. Though suboptimal, the dataset sizes were often small enough and the acceptable query latencies long enough that you could make it work. But today, many applications are storing very large amounts of data, terabytes and petabytes. And the requirements, perhaps, have changed. Modern applications are driving the need for low latencies, real-time processing, and the ability to process millions of requests per second. It's not just key-value stores like DynamoDB, but also in-memory databases like Amazon ElastiCache, time-series databases like Amazon TimeStream, and ledger solutions like Amazon Quantum Ledger Database. The right tool for the right job saves money and gets your product to market faster. 
We're also plunging into helping companies harness machine learning. We've been working on this for a long time, and as with other important advances, our initial attempts to externalize some of our early internal machine learning tools were failures. It took years of wandering, experimentation, iteration, and refinement, as well as valuable insights from our customers to enable us to find SageMaker, which launched just 18 months ago. SageMaker removes the heavy lifting, complexity, and guesswork from each step of the machine learning process, democratizing AI. Today, thousands of customers are building machine learning models on top of AWS with SageMaker. We continue to enhance the service, including by adding new reinforcement learning capabilities. Reinforcement learning has a steep learning curve and many moving parts, which has largely put it out of reach of all but the most well-funded and technical organizations until now. None of this would be possible without a culture of curiosity and a willingness to try totally new things on behalf of customers. And customers are responding to our customer-centric wandering and listening. AWS is now a $30 billion annual run rate business and growing fast. Imagining the impossible. Amazon today remains a small player in global retail. We represent a low single-digit percentage of the retail market, and there are much larger retailers in every country where we operate. And that's largely because 90% of retail remains offline in brick-and-mortar stores. For many years, we considered how we might serve customers in physical stores, but felt we needed first to invent something that would really delight customers in that environment. With Amazon Go, we had a clear vision. Get rid of the worst thing about physical retail, checkout lines. No one likes to wait in line. Instead, we imagined a store where you could walk in, pick up what you wanted, and leave. Getting there was hard, technically hard. It required the efforts of hundreds of smart, dedicated computer scientists and engineers around the world. We had to design and build our own proprietary cameras and shelves and invent new computer vision algorithms, including the ability to stitch together imagery from hundreds of cooperating cameras. And we had to do it in a way where the technology worked so well that it simply receded into the background, invisible. The reward has been the response from customers who described the experience of shopping at Amazon Go as magical. We now have 10 stores in Chicago, San Francisco, and Seattle, and are excited about the future. Failure needs to scale too. As a company grows, Everything needs to scale, including the size of your failed experiments. If the size of your failures isn't growing, you're not going to be inventing at a size that can actually move the needle. Amazon will be experimenting at the right scale for a company of our size if we occasionally have multi-billion dollar failures. Of course, we won't undertake such experiments in a cavalier fashion. We will work hard to make them good bets, but not all good bets will ultimately pay out. This kind of large-scale risk-taking is part of the service we as a large company can provide to our customers and to society. The good news for share owners is that a single big winning bet can more than cover the cost of many losers. Narrator's note, great example coming up here. Development of the Fire Phone and Echo were started around the same time. While the Fire Phone was a failure, we were able to take our learnings as well as the developers, and accelerate our efforts building Echo and Alexa. 
The vision for Echo and Alexa was inspired by the Star Trek computer. The idea also had our origins in two other arenas where we've been building and wandering for years, machine learning and the cloud. From Amazon's early days, machine learning was an essential part of our product recommendations, and AWS gave us a front row seat to the capabilities of the cloud. After many years of development, Echo debuted in 2014, powered by Alexa, who lives in the AWS cloud. No customer was asking for Echo. This was definitely us wandering. Market research doesn't help. If you had gone to a customer in 2013 and said, would you like a black always-on cylinder in your kitchen about the size of a Pringles can that you can talk to and ask questions that also turns on your lights and plays music? I guarantee you they'd have looked at you strangely and said, no, thank you. Since that first-generation Echo, customers have purchased more than 100 million Alexa-enabled devices. Last year, we improved Alexa's ability to understand requests and answer questions by more than 20%, while adding billions of facts to make Alexa more knowledgeable than ever. Developers doubled the number of Alexa skills to over 80,000, and customers spoke to Alexa tens of billions more times in 2018 compared to 2017. The number of devices with Alexa built in more than doubled in 2018. There are now more than 150 different products available with Alexa built in, from headphones and PCs to cars and smart home devices. Much more to come. One last thing before closing. As I said in the first shareholder letter more than 20 years ago, our focus is on hiring and retaining versatile and talented employees who can think like owners. Achieving that requires investing in our employees. And as with so many other things at Amazon, we use not just analysis, but also intuition and heart to find our way forward. Last year, we raised our minimum wage to $15 an hour for all full-time, part-time, temporary, and seasonal employees across the U.S. This wage hike benefited more than 250,000 Amazon employees, as well as over 100,000 seasonal employees who worked at Amazon sites across the country last holiday. We strongly believe that this will benefit our business as we invest in our employees. But that is not what drove the decision. We had always offered competitive wages, but we decided it was time to lead, to offer wages that went beyond competitive. We did it because it seemed like the right thing to do. Today, I challenge our top retail competitors you know who you are, to match our employee benefits and our $15 minimum wage. Do it. Better yet, go to 16 and throw the gauntlet back at us. It's a kind of competition that will benefit everyone. Many of the other programs we've introduced for our employees came as much from the heart as the head. I've mentioned before the Career Choice Program, which pays up to 95% of tuition and fees towards a certificate or diploma in qualified fields of study leading to in-demand careers for our associates, even if those careers take them away from Amazon. More than 16,000 employees have now taken advantage of the program, which continues to grow. Similarly, our career skills program trains hourly associates in critical job skills like resume writing, how to communicate effectively, and computer basics. In October of last year, in continuation of these commitments, we signed the President's Pledge to America's Workers and announced we will be upskilling 50,000 U.S. employees through our range of innovative training programs. 
Our investments are not limited to our current employees or even to the present. To train tomorrow's workforce, we have pledged $50 million, including through our recently announced Amazon Future Engineer Program, to to support STEM and CS education around the country for elementary, high school, and university students with a particular focus on attracting more girls and minorities to these professions. We also continue to take advantage of the incredible talents of our veterans. We are well on our way to meeting our pledge to hire 25,000 veterans and military spouses by 2021. And through the Amazon Technical Veterans Apprenticeship Program, we are providing veterans on-the-job training in fields like cloud computing. A huge thank you to our customers for allowing us to serve you while always challenging us to do even better. To our share owners for your continuing support and to all our employees worldwide for your hard work and pioneering spirit. Teams all across Amazon are listening to customers and wandering on their behalf. As always, I attach a copy of our original 1997 letter. It remains day one. Sincerely, Jeff Bezos, founder and chief executive officer, Amazon.com Incorporated. Commentary. I'm going to reread a couple of these passages because I think they're so awesome. And on each one, I'm going to give a little bit of commentary. Sometimes, often actually in business, you do know where you're going. And when you do, you can be efficient. Put in place a plan and execute. In contrast, wandering in business is not efficient, but it's also not random. It's guided by hunch, gut, intuition, curiosity, and powered by a deep conviction that the prize for customers is big enough that it's worth being a little messy and tangential to find our way there. Wandering is an essential counterbalance to efficiency. You need to employ both. The outsized discoveries, the nonlinear ones, are highly likely to require wandering. I think this is so important because a lot of times we'll do what's obvious, the no-brainers, the pieces that it's super clear-cut what to do. And we should do those, just as Jeff later talks about with regards to having a cheaper database offering. But there's also things that you have a feeling and you have to trust that gut and that conviction that there's something there and you have to, you have to go for it, you have to dig into it, you have to touch upon it. The founders of Lyft did that when they realized that, you know what, there's something to this ride sharing that with the smartphone, there's something more possible here. And, you know, even Uber did that too, that there's a way to make transportation much better. It wasn't entirely obvious. And from a regulatory perspective, it was definitely hard, but they kept iterating and they found something and they found something big. Also Facebook, it wasn't extremely clear that everyone wanted a digitized version of it. But he had enough of a feeling that he should build it and try it, that he went for it. And it definitely caught fire. The next passage. As a company, everything needs to scale, including the size of your failed experiments. If the size of your failures isn't growing, you're not going to be inventing at a size that can actually move the needle. Stepping forward a little bit. Development of the Fire Phone and Echo was started around the same time. While the Fire Phone was a failure, we were able to take our learnings, as well as the developers, and accelerate our efforts building Echo and Alexa. This is such a key piece because the Fire Phone was a pretty large failure. Amazon took a multi-hundred million dollar route down on this. 
but it informed the Echo, and the Echo was at a similar time. So because Amazon was willing to bet and was willing to accept the risk of failure, Firephone, in many ways, was the cost of Echo's massive success, which, as Jeff talks about later, is at 100 million devices. And also, even personally for him, Firephone happened, and just a few years later, Jeff Bezos is the world's richest man. That's incredible. Talk about from extreme failure, but how to, you know, basically the biggest capitalism-based success. But it's that willingness to bet, that willingness to keep wandering, that willingness to do many things that allowed to get many big wins that more than made up for many also real failures. Last but not least, we use not just analysis, but also intuition and heart to find our way forward. This one is so big to me because a lot of folks are very data-driven. They use customer data and what they're seeing and their charts to tell them what the next move is. And I think that's an imperfect approach because analysis is valuable, but analysis married with intuition is where you can find those nonlinear opportunities. And that's why I think it's important to be data-informed, but not data-driven. Because data reflects things as it is. It tells you what has happened. In many ways, it's reactive. But being informed by it, but also using your imagination, tells you, here's what's happened, but then you can use it to also imagine what's possible. And I think there's a huge difference there. And one of my friends, Roy Segal, was quite helpful in helping me understand that. This is an incredible letter from Jeff, and I hope so many people dwell on this and consider this and how they approach what they do and how they spend time discovering new opportunities, as well as when they decide that something's not worth pursuing further. Because sometimes great success just requires a little bit more wandering. But also on the other hand, sometimes you got to call a spade a spade and and give up on something like the fire phone and then invest in something else and take those learnings with you.